Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talk series here at the Abbey. For this podcast, I got to sit down 20 feet apart with singer and actor Lisa O'Neill in the unusually quiet Abbey Auditorium. Lisa spoke to me about finding her way into Patrick Kavanagh's The Great Hunger, currently raging against all the elements of air and earth on the grounds of Ima at Royal Hospital Kilmainham. Lisa talks about celebrating Kavanagh's voice, the long walk to Dublin, the loneliness of a sharp memory and her lifelong fascination with the rich interior life of the quiet man. Enjoy this podcast. Lisa Neil, here we are in the Abbey Theatre looking out onto the Abbey stage and you're no stranger to that stage. I remember you from the Noble Call days and you did Nullagnamon here and you shared a stage with Pat McCabe up there as well. But we find ourselves in the empty auditorium which has an energy in itself. I wanted to bring you back to June of this year when you did a gig, a live stream gig for the National Concert Hall and you started out in the auditorium, an empty auditorium, and you began with Raglan Road. And I wanted to ask you about Patrick Kavanagh and how long he's been on your mind for. I remember hearing about him from a very young age but I don't remember studying them in school, strangely. But, I mean, then that was me in school. I kind of zoned out. I don't think he came up for me, though, in all honesty. But we were just aware of him. He was the probably the most uh, the famous and closest poet to uh, us there in Cavan, you know. So his name was always there. Uh, and then, yeah, cheesy. But, yeah, Raglan Road would have been my first knowledge of him. And I found it interesting and kind of liberating as a songwriter to see how that song was put together, how he put that together and how he believed in it. So it being a poem first and then he wanted it uh, to be sung to the tune of the dawning of the day. So that's the first tune I ever learned on the whistle back when I was seven. So I thought that was a, that was the first I'd heard of somebody doing that. I thought that was very clever. You know, he came to Luke Kelly and said, this is my poem, I want you to sing it and I want you to sing it to this air, the dawning of the day. So uh, that kind of got the cogs going. But, you know, the song doesn't have to, or the poem doesn't have to come with the air always. Maybe it is perfect for an old air. And he wasn't he brave going to the one and only Luke Kelly and saying, you're the man to sing my song, and he was dead right. Like, And now we're, you're back with Kavanagh again on The Great Hunger, which has you and an ensemble cast up in the meadow and the grounds of Royal Hospital Kilmainham, Emma. Were you familiar at all with this one, this poem, The, the Great Hunger? You hadn't, you hadn't come across Kavanagh in your school days, so I'm thinking you probably, or had you come across The Great Hunger? I'd heard about it. There was another phase for me, maybe five or six years ago, where I came across him again, and, and it was audio. It was of him speaking, and I had it on this little device I carry around, little old MP3 player. I was walking around with him in the headphones for, for quite a while, listening to him speak uh, and recite his poems. The Great Hunger wasn't within that either, but I was aware of The Great Hunger until I started doing my research on it a couple of months back when I got invited in to, to this uh, wonderful piece oh I kind of was pretty sure it was about the famine I didn't realise it, it was uh, written uh, about one man in the 1930s you know but it isn't just about one man it's a it's a very much a, a universal story I think it happens to happen in Ireland 
the 1930s, we still would have been hung over from the famine. Hung over is the wrong word. Recovering, recovering. And then maybe we still are, um, psychologically. Did it reach you? Like, when I was reading it, I have to say, I was, I was trying to... I was finding it hard enough to find a resonance in it for me. And then when I read it, maybe the second or third time, and you see all those elements about making the most of your life and not letting it slip through the bars or a loneliness, do you know? And then what happens af- you know, after death? You only have one life to lead. And I think that was quite pertinent, I suppose, in the last what, six to eight months that we've been living through. Because at first I was thinking it was a peculiar choice to be putting it on. And now it feels quite a suitable choice. I think so too. I think it's, it's, it's really philosophical. I, I love that he's, you know, he seems to be shining uh, light on uh, the fact that everyone has an imagination. But could there be a thought out there that uh, rural farmers, bachelors, just don't, and they're happy with their lot, or, and maybe they are happy with their lot, but that there's a depth to their thinking and a depth to their day. And there's magic and mystery within that world, within that life. I mean, I've always been fascinated by uh, the inner workings of the quiet man. Um, when I was a child, there was a farm behind me that I used to get up every Saturday morning at half six, seven o'clock and walk up the lane to watch them milk the cows. And I don't know why I got I got something from this. These farmers, they were nice. They didn't mind me hanging around, but they, they, they had no interest in me either. Like, they wouldn't really turn around for the chat. They did their own thing. But there was something very calming about watching them. And I was curious about what do they think about, you know? So I feel like I'm revisiting that again in, in, in looking at the great hunger. And, and Calvin has kind of given it to us. He's... he's He's shown us in many ways that there, this man, you know, has has as many conflicts as as the the the, the born art, the artist who gets to to study it academically, or the writer, you know. So you see a contentment in there, where I see, perhaps a loneliness. Maybe I'm accentuating that, or a frustration. Whereas you see, some you see another side to it. I see a con contentment in there all right but I also see what you're talking about I see the frustration and the loneliness which I think we all we all have that but uh, yeah what is what is loneliness like what is it it's it's going to be different for everyone and it's going to be different at different stages in our lives I think that maybe Kavanaugh is lonely for for all that he he hasn't got to express um, or or, or touch, or feel, uh, explore even. I think he's lonely because he feels he can see all of this very clearly, but will it ever be received? I think he was certainly kicking back about this um, definition or this title that had been bestowed on him as the peasant poet. And I think he was really flexing his artistic muscles, I think, to show his range, you know, while speaking on a topic, I guess. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's quite insulting, isn't it, to be labelled as the peasant poet. And it's interesting what he did with it. In a way, like, he took it and said, OK, and that, he, he rewrote it in this piece, didn't he? I might move on from Kavanagh. As a songwriter, you bring 
characters to life all the time. Was finding your way into this any different? Was it was an e- was it an easy task to do that with someone else's words? No, it definitely wasn't an easy task. Um, but something that I I really am enjoying. You know, you have to be brave enough to to make decisions and go. I really think this is what he's saying here, or this is what he's trying to um, say, or want us to see. Um, so no, it's never it's never easy, um, but it's so fulfilling to to inhabit. Like you know, and I think that that's what happens when. I take on a character. I want to know as much about them as possible and try and figure out their characteristics and and how certain things may make them feel. And then if that if that feeling if it can resonate with me, then I mean I can I can move from there emotionally. And it's because of your your background um into creating characters. Like, did you did you feel that you were shifting gear into doing it a different way for this for this one? Yeah, because like any of the characters that I might have worked with before, we say Violet Gibson, for example, was the the Dublin woman who tried to um, assassinate Mussolini. You know, my research was a different thing because I'm not working off one piece. Uh, it it can be quite scattered and. You're building a picture with pieces from different places, but with this, this is a this is a piece from from start to finish that Kavanaugh wrote, and I would imagine he would have felt it is finished. So, in order for me to go in and try and weave a new piece through it, it's scary, like you know. And uh, I'm constantly asking him, "Is this okay? Do you think is this you know?" <laughs> Does well, this work? It's an interesting project because there's there's 14 verses um, split over, must be 16 actors plus musicians as well. Mm-hmm. Um, 26. In the 26 cast. altogether. I'm, it's fascinating because you won't all see each other's work, you know, um, as one as one flowing unit. Maybe maybe on one of the dresses you can skip down, but because it's done in a staggered fashion, by the time maybe the the third stanza's on or the fourth stanza's on, you, you've leapt up to go back up to your first stanza place. So so on saying that, it's, there's a rotation involved. All those actors have their own, inter- and that's why they were cast. They were in- interpreting their verse themselves, do you know? Mm-hmm. So you have to become an authority. So you have to, you know, punch for your instincts as well because you were hire- hired to do that. Do you know, if it, was all, if it was, in some ways, if it was one through line of thought all the way through, you know, we'd just be all cycling downhill in some ways, but, it's, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, because you don't know what you're going to encounter for the next verse or the next verse or what that actor's going to bring to it. Yeah, there's a lot of trust involved, you know. There's a lot of variety involved as well. There's a versatility there. Trust. I don't think misplaced trust Oh, no, either. not at all, but in, in a really good way. I mean, and that's that's just part of it, isn't it? That here's your stanza. And soak it up, and you know, express it out again. It's such a tease that we 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 know we won't get to see. It. I'd love to be the, I'd love to be in the audience. I just think there's something really really special about it happening this year as well, and at a time where it's not it's, it's such a struggle for us to put anything like that on, you know, 
it's brave and it's such an honor for Kavanagh as well that 80 years after he wrote this, I mean, he unashamedly uh, wrote and said so, so often about how much he wanted to be remembered and imagine me in 100 years time in Dublin and all of this. Well, you've, you've done it, Kavanagh, like 80 years on and we're, we're in the middle of a, uh, a pandemic and there's not many pieces getting put on and you've been chosen and there's 26 of us breeding life through this again. And even if it's only for, I think we're eight or nine nights, that's a lot in October. And um, I just think, I think it's beautiful. And that it's outside. Yeah. It starts off in the October colour weather, I think, that he's known for. It's particularly apt, isn't it, to be outside with it. It suits it. It suits the weather. It certainly does. Do you know, Kevin, I walked to Dublin the first time he came to Dublin. Oh, yeah, he was an outdoors man. Is this when he walked all the way to George Russell's house? I'm not sure about that now, but I know it took him three days. I think it would be strange to see this thing indoors and on a stage at this point. Performing outside, it's it's everyone is out of their comfort zone. All you know, we're all kind of catching up on it. I see, you know, all the Abbey crew up there, and I'd imagine teching outside. Is this your first theatre show? Yeah. Uh, Tekken for a theatre show is one thing and then Tekken outside for a theatre show is another thing. Uh, how, how has the experience been for you? Because I, I saw you up there, you must have been 10 hours. Were, were, they were all out outside for maybe 10 to 12 hours of the day. Well, I find the whole thing fascinating. It's all new to me. So I can't really compare it. You know, even though I've been told this is not the norm, um, everything here is new to me and I'd be happy to be there for another 10 hours in the day because, well, there's been such a lack of activity in the last six months as well that just is just very fulfilling. Um, it's beautiful up there as well, you know. I have a tree that I'm singing under and I'm enjoying familiarising myself with that spot and with that space, but you look around and it's not boring. It's, it, it may be a little tiring, but I'm just so happy to be working, you know, and to be involved. And it doesn't, until it, maybe when it's over, it'll, it'll kind of ease down, but it doesn't leave me. The piece is with me all the time and he's with me all the time, you know. I light a candle for him every evening. Do you? Yes, I'm very romantic in that sense. <laughs> do you do that often? Yeah. Not for Kavana, but... But for other people, is that, is that a thing people, you do? Yeah. I, I mean, if I, if I hear news that somebody's struggling or unwell or something like that, candle is something I like to do. I don't need to tell them. It's some form of connecting, keeping them with me in my mind, I think. There's something about the flame as well, you know? There's something about a flame moving there's a hope in it are you a, a spiritual person i think so yeah i feel the spirit of kavanagh at the moment i don't think i'm fooling myself I, he left so much for us to try and understand i think that he really wanted to be understood and that's not really a strange thing i think that we all want to be understood we want to know we exist we want to know that at least some people recognise us as an individual. 
I think especially when you grow up in uh, larger families as well. And Kavanagh did. He grew up within uh, one of ten. And yes, I think you know we're we're all we're all studying this. Do you know what I think is wonderful? You know, there's 26 of us walking around Dublin with this fella in our head the last couple of weeks. Well done, Patrick Kavanagh. When you say you feel the spirit of him, and I'm, I don't mean to investigate this too much, but how do you see him? I think I have a, a sense of him being quite like people from my part of the country, um, particularly in my mother's family. They're from a, a place called Crostoni, a townland called Crostoni in Cavan. And th- just because I've got this, you know, I've listened to this audio of him, I know how he sounds when he speaks. And uh, it's a little hums and haws here and there between sentences. When you can hear someone thinking, you can feel familiar with them. He just feels very familiar. Not fancy. Um, I don't know. I d- There's something about Calvin Monaghan people that I can't put my finger on. But they don't... It's significant, like, you know... Um, I did have the notion last week that Calvin and Monaghan are full of lakes. So in a sense, they're full of mirrors. And Calvin was definitely having a really, really long, deep look at himself as an individual and uh, questioning what else is there. And I, I get that. I think we get to a stage in our adult life, if we're creative people, that we... We stall at the mirror for a while, and this isn't this isn't about vanity now. I'm, it's deeper than that. I feel reading the great hunger that maybe he's part of him's going, who's in there? And then maybe he's saying, I know who's in there. Why is he not getting to live? There's a sadness in the the fact that he didn't leave until he was in his forties. If he stayed his whole life and didn't want to leave, that's all good. You don't have to leave. But the fact that he wondered and wanted to leave, I think that that's kind of sad. I feel a lot of myself in him because I could have easily not have left as well. And I wonder where my head would be at and what would be suppressed, you know. In some ways, I feel like I'm maybe getting to live the, the, the life that, that Kavanaugh might have wanted to live in his 20s and 30s. Um, that he didn't, you know, and the as a writer from that part of the country to come come to Dublin and just go for it and don't feel like you need to kind of dress it up or anything like that. It's about it's about speaking your 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 experience, your mind, not trying to kind of get it to match the level of everybody else, peers, other people within the arts, you know. He didn't try and change himself for anyone. I really admired that. And the impetus for you to leave, was it any one thing that pushed you or was it just it was it was time for you to head to Dublin? Secondary school was over. It was time to it was time to study something. Well it was music I went to study, so that, that was very, very exciting for me because I'd know 
uh, I wasn't really interested in anything else. I was interested in people, but I didn't really know that, you know. I later, you know, heard words, like I heard the name of this subject, anthropology. Why didn't somebody speak to me about that in school, you know? But sure, I went down my own road in the end and did my own studies on, I guess, on people and wrote. I still write about them. I came across a piece and you were talking to an interviewer about, on paper, about the day you left for Dublin. And I'm bringing this to lead on to something else. But And there was a way, the, the way you talked about it was that you were sitting in the kitchen with your mum. And it was this obviously significant moment that you were leaving for Dublin that day. And it was 20 something years ago. And you were getting upset and your mum was cooking you dinner and she said something like, well, you have to eat this because it'll stand to you for the rest of the evening. And there was something, the way you described it on paper, the image was very clear, made me, made a pang of homesickness kind of well up in me because uh, I could, I could visualise it. Uh, and I also knew that for you, this was going to be a leap into the unknown. So the way that was captured, I suppose it leads me on to this question about how you as a creative person, you shape stories from details that the rest of us, I suppose, live through all day long. And it seems to me that as an artist, the way you receive the world is what marks a difference between me and you. I could have sat in that kitchen that day or, or if I told someone I left for Dublin that day on a Sunday in September. But the way you told it affects me. Well, I think what happens for me in these situations is that because it was emotional, it stays with me. And in that situation, I remembered that day crying over the dinner, feeling uh, guilty because I wasn't hungry, probably with anxiety and, and fear and sadness and excitement as well. But guilty that mum had probably, I think that day had made maybe one of my favourite dinners or something. She was making an effort for me. And I was feeling guilty I couldn't finish it for her. But also, look, it was the, it was the upset that allows me to remember it. And the, even though it wasn't chaos, ma'am saying, at least to try and finish it, it'll stand to you this evening. That was a scene that I remember well. And I took it with me on the bus that day. I remember thinking, oh, mum's feelings might be hurt I didn't finish the dinner and, but it was much more that was going on I think she was trying to say to me don't be scared don't be this is a good thing and, but I was lonesome my heart was breaking lately I look back and things like that and realise you know we talk about the typical getting your heart broken through romantic love what stands out are moments like that they're proper heartbreaking times where you know something's changing and It'll stand you this evening where I won't be there to feed you. This is the last meal I can give you to get you going and ready for the road. There's a lot to it, isn't there? And I guess that's... You know, there's nothing fancy about my writing. It's just that I remember well, and I think I remember well because it's tied up in, the, in emotion. It's, it's what, get, what is tied up in emotion is what I remember well. And I can I can have very fine detail. Like I can know I'll know what I was wearing, all of that stuff, and what the other person was wearing, and what maybe smells were going on in the room at the time. But I thought that was normal. I thought everybody thinks like that. Are you aware that not everyone does? 
Uh, yeah, and and that's lonely. That's a little bit isolating. Because it marks you out as different? No, it just means that you're probably carrying more stuff that other people would seem to be able to offload easily or let it go over their head. I suppose what you were saying is that emotion and significance drives memory for you. Yeah. I think it's a valuable trait. I'm glad to have it. I wouldn't want to train my mind to receive my experiences differently. It's all good. I'm lucky because I can turn it into a song um, and it allows me to... I guess, yeah, my, my memory is a little sharper in certain areas. Do you remember the first time that you wrote something down? Whether, if it is driven by emotion, do you, is that what drove the first piece of writing for you to write it down on paper? And, and would you have shown that to someone? Would you have been, were you proud of it? No, I do remember writing something down for the first time. Got a little keyboard from Santi when I was probably eight or something. And I didn't have it long when I wrote these little lyrics and I had them hanging up and see, can I sing with it? Like, you know, and I delighted with myself. But I remember closing the door and then hiding them afterwards. I mean, you wouldn't want anyone to find that. Like, so it was a secret. Um, I was embarrassed because I didn't know anyone else who did that. So it felt a little bit indulgent and strange and weird. But I never told anyone. No, I wasn't proud of that. You see, I think you need to be... You need a little encouragement before you realise that there's something to this, you know? You need someone to say, oh, that's that's not bad, another one. The first time I got that encouragement was from probably my guitar teacher when I was 14. A couple of weeks into lessons, I came back with the new song and he said, where'd you get that? And I said, I wrote that. And he looked at me funny. Oh, really? And I said, yeah. I didn't think that was strange. I thought everybody must be writing their own songs. Why wouldn't they? And it wasn't um, encouraged at home. Your your dad was a, a drummer from the show band. Was music in your house? Like, and, and It was encouraged, yeah. But they didn't know that I was thinking about my own ideas, you know. Once I started to show them to them and did a couple of little local concerts and stuff like that, no, mum and dad were very much behind it and very uh, excited. And my mum was very instrumental in me kind of get, getting into this course in, in Dublin and stuff like that. No, it was encouraged, but I didn't take it serious at all. I didn't, if anything, I didn't want it to be encouraged or I didn't share it. And I don't know, it's hard to, I'm still trying to figure it out, Lisa. Was it that it was a private thing or was it? Probably. So when did you, uh, when did you think of yourself as a legit musician? When did you think I can, I can do this? Uh, I can, first of all, make a living out of it or, or I can actually say to people, that's what I do. When I left my job, my last job in Bewley's in Grafton Street, probably must be 11 years ago now, maybe 12. Then, because I left uh, to go on a big tour with David Gray. And when I came back from that tour, or even the first night out on that tour, I knew I, I, knew I was good at it. And I knew that it, it didn't kind of 
rattle me to do it or I'd, I'd no fears or anything like that. Just plough in. I thought, oh, this is good. I'm good at this. There must have been a bit of a road before you met David Gray. There was, but it was all very casual. And I, I felt that everybody else who was doing it was on a different kind of more professional road than me. Different reasons as well. Everyone was ambitious about it, like, you know, looking for gigs and asking questions and stuff like that. And I wasn't. Like, it was very much a private thing for me. But I'm a chatty, sociable person, I guess, so I'd have no problem playing a song if someone asked me to play a song and I have no problem that being an original song I wouldn't make the difference if that's what I felt like doing on the night I wouldn't always say it was original either so and what's the, the word I'm looking for I'm not a um, strategic person I, I did never see my writing uh, and explorations uh, to be something for monetary value much much richer much more I have much higher value on, on it than that um, but of course I know we all have to earn we need some to get by so I'd rather make that some in what I love doing I've no, I'm not interested in numbers of popularity or anything like that you know but I am interested in the wealth of the imagination and keeping that healthy and keeping that going and um that's a diet for me, you know, and it's very, very important. I'm very protective of it. And um, does creativity come easy to you? Is it is it practice discipline or is it even more natural than that? I think it's more natural than that. Yeah, I think easy, natural, I think, would be the word, yeah. It does. I think that a lot of things I put my hand to would be treated as delicately as a poem or a song is, being cooking a meal. I, I take my time with things. I take my time eating. I take my time cooking, um, gardening, all of those things. And in, and in my interactions with people as well, I've... I've found out since the lockdown I'm definitely introverted I didn't realise that until I came off the road and the busyness I kept going with the busyness of it all and keep social but it's not so natural to me to um, be having a, a, min, a million mini conversations I really like one to one and I really like to get to a good chat with somebody you know if I get a get to have a really decent chat with somebody three or four hours once in, in my life, in their life. That's really, really special to me. So how has lockdown been for you? I suppose I'm trying to think of uh, how the creativity, is it flowing amidst it's, that? It's a different thing now, you know. Yeah, of course, being on the road, meeting people, travelling is does wonders for your creativity. The problem with that is that you don't always get the chance to go into the quiet place and do something with those little nuggets that you pick up on the road. You don't always get to visit them uh, before they leave you, before the feeling. Let me try and explain it to you. Like a notion or a feeling on something where you just know, oh, I'm going to write about that. When that lands... It's very, it's, for me, it's emotional and it's like, it's like I see it. It's like a vision and I think it's moving through me and I, I'm, you know, 
that can disappear uh, after a couple of days like that enthusiasm that feeling that understanding of the thing that you just know I'm going to write about that if you know if there's three or four weeks on the road skipping from city to city before you get home uh, and uh, into a private space and that space that you need with your mind to to write about that thing you know often it's gone it's lost the the understanding of why, why it's so clear to you but I mean, like you know, if if I was at home the whole time and not out there, I, I probably I may be at a loss for writing. But this year, no, I feel it's a bit selfish saying this because everybody else misses it so much. But I'm really enjoying the change and the stillness and just getting to know myself without all the movement and it's quieter it's a noisy old world like you know I wasn't processing everything and I like to process things your your rapport with an audience is very easy you have a very easy way of conversation here now as well but when I see you in concert you have a very easy way with an audience how will that do you think change with how we're living in these times now you can still be creative, you can still perform, but that engagement with an audience will be absent. Where do you, where do you sit with that? Well, I miss that. That's the bit I love the most, but uh, the live gigs is this exchange that we have, you know, this little dance we do. Like, can't generalise because every audience is different. There are different combination of people coming together. They don't realise, do they realise that they're, they're affecting each other and me? and and I'm affecting them. Um, it's such a big responsibility, say, to put on a show and put out tickets, say, for the Abbey Theatre, for the National Concert Hall, like your typical gig anyway. Well, no, no gig is a typical gig, but it's it's such a it's such a big responsibility because, you know, it comes with the idea that you you know that uh, you sh- you should have it in you to keep these people occupied for this hour hour and a half or whatever it is to keep it flowing to keep it going to bring them into your world um but it's all about listening because i mean i know when i step out onto stage i i know 10 15 seconds in whether we've connected yet or not um and that's all to do with listening. It's a, a to emotion and listening to an energy in, in the room, and you can't be like homing in on a, a, a heckler or someone who wants to be on the stage. Usually, is what's happening when they're kind of shouting up too much and stuff like that. But just you have to kind of see them in a sense as one, and this being this kind of conversation, it's like a dance. So there's listening going on. And they deserve respect, you know. They've, they're respecting you. They're coming. They're curious to see what you have to say. Um, they've bought tickets, and if I take that for granted and decide ah, I have them, it's sold out. It doesn't really matter whether they're listening or not. It fucking does. It absolutely matters. It matters from the second I step on, out on the stage to saying goodnight to myself and going to bed that night uh, saying, you know, did, was, did you let this, did you, did you drop the ball there? And why did you drop the ball? Were you distracted? What, did you, what were you feeling from the audience? You can feel when they're disinterested. 
and you need to pick it up or you need to change it up. Something needs to change. And I can feel when they are interested as well, I can feel, okay, okay, that sat well with them. Well, because that sat well with them, I'm going to give them this. But you obviously can harness uh, an audience's energy, but um, you, you have to give an awful lot of yourself to that. That yeah. sounds draining. You don't look at it that way, you know. I guess I don't hold too much back. I I do. I'm a private person. I don't give everything. It's I don't know if it, the draining isn't the right word, but you're touching on something there. Like it's more like you're giving. You know, the exchange is odd because it feels like they're going away with a, quite an in-depth knowledge of your inner workings. Uh, and there's only one of me, and there could be however many, 50 or 150 or sometimes thousands, you know, of the audience. Uh, and and I I have to accept to walk away and go, don't know much about them, but that felt good. We, we, we connected, we communicated. Is there much of a line then between being a singer, performer and being an actor? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I still don't know what it means to be an actor. Um, it's all a new world to me and it's very, very exciting. And, you know, I might find in a little while that, no, there isn't much of a line. But because I'm only learning and fascinated, like, and I, I really, really love to be good at that. And would you have been watching theatre growing up? Would there have been an interest in it? Yeah, I when I was in a theatre group in Calvin in with Aaron Monaghan actually when I was when I was a teenager, but I didn't think I was good at it. I didn't understand. Uh, I wasn't making the difference in reading and inhabiting, with musically that was natural for me. But in acting, I thought there was a trick that I didn't get, and I'm learning in my uh, my studies here with the Abbey over the last couple of weeks. I mean, I feel so lucky. I think I'm getting an amazing education. Visualizing your line. Believing, I'm finding out that, for some strange reason, I thought that acting might mean that I need to learn how to lie. And I didn't want to do that. I've done well. I got to 38 and I've had a career in performance without putting on a a show for anyone or putting on a mask or being anyone other than myself on any given day. And I always wanted to get into acting, but for some reason thought, I won't be able to do that because I don't want to learn how to lie, but I was wrong. It's not about lying, it's learning how to believe, to believe and understand what you're reading and seeing. So I guess the long-winded answer to your question uh, they're probably not that different in their honesty, you know, and, and in their tapping into the truth. Is there something in the way that you're talking there that you, you're you selling yourself short about your ability as an actor? Well, we don't know yet, you know. <laughs> um, really, time, time will tell. I don't know. I don't know my abilities as an actor yet. Like, you know. There was um, something that occurred to me about our last meeting, which was years ago in the Abbey Green Room. And we were chatting there before you were coming out on stage and you had a 
you were talking about the picture you had in your guitar case. It was Ronnie um, Drew, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, because Phelan Drew was in the green room doing the Risen People at the time and we had a big talk like that. And I guess the question is, is that picture still in your guitar case yeah. or has it been joined? Is it? Ronnie's still in there. <laughs> My parents are in there, you know, when they're very young and it's cute off on a boat trip together. Little tokens that are given to me, like Claire, my manager, and one of my best friends, actually. She's really made, this woman made a huge difference, makes a huge difference in my life. We're a team, you know. Um, she gave me little tokens that she thinks are important. Like Claire says to me that she thinks it's important to mark an occasion if there's an achievement, like, you know, when we sign a record deal or something like that. Mark it. So yeah, the guitar case can I can be carrying little things like that in there. They mean something to me every time. I we all have bad days, you know, and sometimes, unfortunately, that that bad day might happen on the day of a gig. Um, and to open up the guitar case and see uh, all these different, all these little significant things that help me remember. They're just they encourage me. They make me. They remind me. I don't know, they're like heroes. Like like in a really innocent way I would have put Ronnie Drew in there thinking I I I I I'm I'm on your I'm on the similar road. I, I you know, stay with me. I met Ronnie, you see. Um and he was very encouraging uh, to me and that, that meant a lot. I was working in beauties at the time and he gave me a little advice and I thought maybe there's something good about what I'm doing because Ronnie said it, so maybe that's why I kept them in the guitar case. But it was wonderful to, to meet Phelan here that evening. And the photograph I have of Ronnie in there, oh, he was a f beautiful looking man, you know. And uh, he sported a great beard, um, big blue eyes. And uh, I thought that uh, Phelan was looking quite like him in the photograph when I met him that night, you know, that was cool. And I don't think that I knew I was going to be meeting Phelan that evening. No, it was by accident. We just were retreating there and to the end of the show and he came out just, he was finishing his scene so he came out to the green room and that all happened. And then you went out on stage and sang your song for part of the Noble Call. Oh, it was brilliant. And that was my first time in the Abbey as well. And it's, inter it's, it's, it's so peculiar to be here when no one else is. Do you know? It, the I atmosphere know. is just... Yeah, I know. I felt the same in the concert hall as well. I mean, look, in a sense, we, we know what it feels like to be in these empty rooms because we do sound check in them all the time. But that's always leading to them, to them filling up. There's a sadness to it. But um, at the same time, maybe oh, I'd love to think that the walls are, you know, like every every couple of years, they, they don't do Glastonbury to let the land have a... <laughs> maybe the venues are getting that little break now as well. Um, I mean, there's energy. It has to be energy in these rooms and on these seats. They need a break, like, you know, these seats need a break from Irish arses. <laughs> <And> <laughs> right. <laughs> Let's bring them for a walk around Emma instead. That's it, yeah. The theatre isn't dark because we're going out into the dark, up to Emma. I'll see you out there in the darkness. See you out there. It's great to be pulled right out of our comfort zone. Lisa O'Neill, thank you so much for your time today. You're very welcome, Lisa.